Hey to all you fish enthusiasts out there. Whether you're an avid angler or just curious about fish, we'd like to welcome you to Fish of the Week, your audio almanac of all the fish. It's Monday, March 7th, 2022, and this year we're excited to take you on a week-by-week tour of fish across the country with guests from all walks of life. I'm Katrina Liebeck with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service in Alaska. And I'm Guy Ero, because that's what I say at the beginning of these episodes. There you go. (laughs) I snorted. And this week's fish is the coelacanth. Do we want to talk about where the coelacanth name comes from? Hollow spines in the tail. That's what I've heard. Yeah, go for it. I've said all I have to say about it. (laughs) (laughs) So guys, we've been planning out the fish list for this year. We knew that March was Women's History Month. We knew that International Women's Day was in early March, too. And with that in mind, two fish really rose to the surface. We've got the Amazon molly, which is an all-female species of fish. It's super cool. We're definitely going to talk about them in a later episode. And the other was the coelacanth. And the reason we landed on this fish is not just because it's quite different than all living fishes, but also because it's discovery by a young museum curator. She was also an amateur ichthyologist. Her name was Marjorie Latimer, and this was back in the 1930s. It was arguably one of the most important discoveries in the field of ichthyology. And why it was so significant was that this fish was thought to have been extinct for over 60 million years before she discovered and presented it to the world of science. This led to the discovery of the first documented population of coelacanths off the Comoros Islands between Africa and Madagascar. And for 60 years, that was presumed to be the only coelacanth population in existence. While we're departing a little from our usual focus on North American fishes to talk about this fish, we do know that coelacanths, you know, they're really unusual They used to have a much bigger range than they do today, and their fossils have been found across the world, including here in the U.S. in places like Alabama, Georgia, New Jersey, Texas. And this fish and its story, it's just really inspiring. So we thought it'd be worth talking about it in the larger context of celebrating all the fish and also instances where women have made some really important contributions to this field. So that said, this episode's all about the coelacanth, Marjorie's discovery, and how there's still a lot to be discovered and learned about fish no matter where you are in the world. So let's talk about what these fish look like, because they have several unique physical features that few or no other living species have. They're large and plump. We're talking six feet-ish, 200 pounds. Some of them used to be bigger. That's what the fossil record tells us. They used to be up to five meters. They used to be smaller. Some were sleeker. Nevertheless, these are kind of some big, chunky fish. And one of the major defining differences between the coelacanth and almost all other fishes is that their fins are attached to these short, chunky things that look kind of like limbs. They actually move in a similar way that our arms and legs do also, which is also very unique. And there's only a few of these lobe fin fishes alive today. Yeah, and going back into geologic history, there's a whole lot more of these fish, but there's only some that are extant. It's the the class Sarcopterygii is is what we're going to call it. Uh, or what it is called. We're not just making that up. But yeah, that's the lobe fin fishes. And you kind of got two branches of what's left of those. You have the coelacanths, which there's two species, and that's what we're talking about today. And then you got your lung fishes, which there's six species of those. So you have eight species of fish to this entire class, so it's pretty rare. But then down the line, you also have the tetrapods, which is everything that people think of, like terrestrial vertebrates and other like marine mammals and stuff. All your mammals amphibians, reptiles, birds, all of those are tetrapods. And really, if you're talking about this from like a cladistic standpoint, are part of the Sarcopterygii. And that 
divergence of coelacanths and lungfish and tetrapods, I was reading that that's thought to have occurred like 390 million years ago or some like crazy amount of time ago. So it's this is a really kind of long-term old fish that we're talking about today. It's super cool. So let's talk more about those fins. They extend from the body like limbs and they move in an alternating pattern. And like you were mentioning, Guy, you know, they kind of resemble the movement maybe of the forelegs and the hind legs of those tetrapods walking on land. Do you know how these fish are using these cool fins? I know we're going to talk a little bit about their biology and kind of where they live, but how are they using these fins compared to other fish that we know kind of more commonly today? They're mainly kind of a drifting fish. They live fairly deep, not wildly deep, but, you know, 70 meters, maybe 100 meters plus down these caves near island systems, either the most common ones for the West Indian species, which is the one that we're kind of talking about primarily today and that was discovered first, is around sort of the Comoros Islands uh, between Madagascar and Mozambique. And then the other one is over sort of off like Sulawesi over there in Indonesia, which is a different part of the world, but a similar habitat. So they're kind of down there in these currents and they're a nocturnal feeder and they probably primarily come out at night. Granted, I've never seen them. There's not a ton of footage out there uh, on these fishes because they're very rare. But from what I've read, they kind of drift around from spot to spot and they can use these limbs. Like I say, they, they, they move them like they're walking, except for they have no substrate. So it's kind of like they're sculling around in the water column to help them sort of navigate and, and get to where they need to go. If you imagine that they kind of move diagonally where it, the pectoral fins are analogous to the arms and the pelvic fins are analogous to the legs on a tetrapod. And so when you move your right pectoral fin, your right arm, you're moving that at the same time that you're moving your left leg. If you imagine walking, you move those two together. So it's kind of this diagonal cross movement. That's sort of how they move their fins. Yeah, and that's like totally different than any other fish that we've talked about. I was reading that they also have this really cool hinge on their skull. So it allows them to open their mouth really wide. And when I say hinge, and this is really strange, I mean, there's a division separating the ear and the brain from the nasal organs and eye. This intracranial joint allows the front part of the head to be lifted when the fish is feeding. And that's just a really cool and unique feature that coelacanths have. Yeah, I think they one one thing that I've read about them is that they're one of the few, if maybe not the only vertebrates out there that have the ability to actually move both of their jaws. So you think about us, we kind of got the mandible, the lower jaw can move, but the top jaw, the top of our mouth is kind of just affixed to our skull and you can't really move that without moving the whole skull. Whereas these fish, they can actually move their mouth is relatively small when you you look at it, but they're able to, uh, they, they can't do that whole vacuum suction in the same way that you think of like a largemouth bass or something really opening his mouth real big because they just don't have that machinery that, that evolved in a separate lineage of fishes, your actinopterygii. But what these guys have is they can actually just move the top jaw itself, which gets a larger gape, and so they can eat larger prey items than if they could just remove the bottom one. So you can imagine when Marjorie came across this fish, some fishermen had brought it in on a fishing boat. You can imagine just her seeing it and being like, man, this looks a lot different than any other fish that is coming in. Obviously, they're super rare and had never been seen before that time other than in the fossil record. So it's just it was I mean, I can just imagine what that discovery was like for her and seeing that. And that was back, I think, in 1938. And then the other species was discovered in the 90s. But yeah, it's a, it's a pretty recent discovery and a, a pretty amazing discovery at that just because it, 
had never been found before. And it's such a long extinct species that people thought was out there. Yeah. And I feel like you're kind of underplaying it there, Katrina, a little bit, because this is arguably the the most exciting discovery in the history of ichthyology, certainly at the time. I mean, you, you got this woman, Marjorie Lattimore. And she, she's going down to the docks. Suppose This is the story that I've been told. I don't know if all the details are exactly correct, but there's differing accounts. But she <laughs> goes down to the docks to wish Merry Christmas to her friends down there who work and show her some of the fish. And this guy, uh, Goosen, I believe was his name, was the captain of the ship. He had put away some fish to the side that he thought that might be interesting to her. And just imagine what it must have been like to show up. You see all these different fish from the trawler that you normally get. And to her credit, she knew right away what this was. Yeah. She knew the fossil record. She knew what these fish, but to see essentially, uh, the only thing I can equate it to is like, you're, you're going around and then you see a, a living, breathing dinosaur. <laughs> yeah. Just out of the, like you're going bird watching and you see a pterodactyl sitting there and. Pterodactyls weren't dinosaurs, guy. Oh, well, neither was the coelacanth. <laughs> Anyhow, so to her credit, let's pick up where we were. She knew that this was a coelacanth, a fossil fish, something that to anyone's knowledge, there was no living specimens of this fish ever found. And she knew the importance of trying to preserve it the best way possible. Now, granted, we're getting towards Christmas time. People are busy. It's the 1930s and there's a lot going on. Uh, but she reaches out to her colleague, mentor, uh, this is J.L.B. Smith I'm talking about, renowned ichthyologist down there in South Africa. This is all happening in South Africa, East London, South Africa, if we're not sure. He was off away on holiday. Like I said, it was Christmas. And she sends him a picture. She does a rough sketch and tries to describe what this fish is, tells him, I think that we've actually got a coelacanth on our hands, a real, live, living, breathing, well, it's dead at this point, uh, but an existing, just was alive coelacanth. And he gets back with one of the most famous telegrams in the history of ichthyology, let me go to my notes here. It's uh, in all caps. Most important, preserve skeleton and gills equals fish described. And now there was a little bit of trouble trying to preserve the fish. And I'll let Katrina tell you about that. But this is, it was, I, I, I don't want to understate how important and interesting and cool this discovery was and how pivotal a role Marjorie Ladmore played in it. I mean, she got the genus of the species named after her in honor of this work that she did. Yeah, so after she found this fish. I mean, then it was the challenge of actually preserving it. So apparently she was worried about preserving it quickly. First thing she did was try to take it to a mortuary. And they were like, heck no, we're not going to do that here. She tried a cold storage place. Also, no. Then she went to a, a taxidermy friend, I think, and they ended up wrapping the fish in newspapers soaked in formalin. And ultimately it was taxidermied. It went from being kind of that beautiful blue speckled color turn brown as a result of that preserving process. But as far as I know, you can still go see this fish in the East London Museum. It's a five foot long, 127 pound fish. And unfortunately, because it was a taxidermist, which if yep. you know about taxidermy, they basically just take the skin off and put it over a mold. So they did not preserve the gills. They did not pre preserve the skeleton. So when Smith got back, he got to see it for himself, confirmed, yes, indeed, this was definitely a coelacanth, but they didn't have the material they needed to actually describe the fish and get it published. And it took over a decade to find another one of these. They were offered rewards to anyone who was able to 
get one of these fish to them. But it took, I think, another like 14 years or so before another one was discovered and they're actually able to write all this up. Yeah. And since then, I mean, more have been discovered. And we know now that the current range is primarily along the eastern African coast. But living coelacanths have been found in the waters of Kenya and Tanzania, Mozambique, South Africa, Madagascar, the Comoros, as you mentioned, Guy, and Indonesia. And I guess in terms of the species, I mean, there's you mentioned there's two living coelacanth species. Both are very rare. This first one discovered by Marjorie in 1938. And the second one, the Indonesian coelacanth, was discovered in the 90s. Yeah. Simil- a similar situation, kind of. You know, in Marjorie Lavimore's case, it was uh, coming off of a trawler at the docks. In the Indonesia case, there was a couple of researchers who were walking around a fish market over there in Indonesia, and they happened to see something that blew their minds. You wouldn't expect mm-hmm. the coelacanth to be over there. And again, they weren't able to get that fish, but they came back later, offered rewards saying, hey, have you seen this fish? Have you seen this fish? To all the fishermen, if you catch one of these, get them to us. We will pay high dollar for it. And th- this time it only took another year. I think they saw the first one around the year I was born, like 97 or so, and then got the official one that became the new species, the Indonesian species, around 98. Yeah, and I was reading, I mean, these fish are found in deep waters. I mean, why are people catching them more now, Guy? I mean, it's just more kind of pressure on these deeper environments. I mean, it seems like there's more of these fish being caught. Is there more of them? I mean, I know for a while there they got worried because right now both both are considered threatened and endangered. I believe the Indonesian one is listed as vulnerable under IUCN and the West Indian one, the one that is primarily found around the Comoros is uh, critically endangered. Yeah. And I know for a while there that there was, cause when, when they found out that this fish still exists, there was kind of a f- media frenzy. Museums wanted to get their hands on them. So this fish that otherwise, you know, from what I've read is, and I know you don't necessarily like me saying this Katrina, uh, but not a good eating fish. <laughs> I, I don't think a lot of the people who catch them can sit that. I mean, certainly it's not common enough that it's a staple yeah. and it's not considered a delicacy from what I've read. And so it, it wasn't really a, a prized fish, but now that the museums wanted them, that drove the demand up for these fish and put it is partially responsible for putting it in the position it's in today. And I'm actually okay with you saying that this time, that they're not a good eating fish. (laughs) This is the one time I'm going to be all right with it. Apparently their flesh has high amounts of oil, which is fine, but also urea and wax esters and some other compounds that give them kind of a foul flavor and it can make you sick. So they are not one that you want to be eating. (laughs) You mentioned the urea there too, which is an interesting thing. And granted, again, I'm, I'm no coelacanth expert, but I was reading that the way that they do osmoregulation is actually similar to what you see in some maybe your more ancestral fishes like your sharks, your cartilaginous fishes, where they retain urea. And I'm not sure if they have the trimethylamine oxide in there as well. But, you know, if you catch a shark and you're going to eat it, you got to bleed it first because otherwise they'll start to taste like pee-pee. And so I imagine that from what I've read that the coelacanth kind of has a similar way of maintaining salt balances uh, in their bloodstream. Yeah. Word. <laughs> Can I talk about the fossil record and their their way of reproduction? Yeah. And then I got one about their brain. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I think kind of, uh, I'll let you. I'll, yeah, yeah. I Don't read steal my that. thunder. That's pretty funny. <laughs> but so it's cool. Like we mentioned, historically, people thought of it as a fossil fish. So it was really in the realm of paleontologists trying to figure out how this thing evolved. And people found 
a fossil of the coelacanth, and it had a bunch of little coelacanths inside of it. So they're like, okay, well, this fish, it probably is viviparous. It gives live birth. That's interesting. Maybe that's something related to how we evolved. Then they look, later they found another one that was full of eggs, another fossil had a bunch of eggs inside of it. So like, okay, chalk up that first fossil to it. It's a cannibal. It ate a bunch of babies. (laughs) And finally, when they they found this live one, they they were able to get one that was, uh, I guess, pregnant ain't quite the right word, but they're not oviparous. They're not viviparous, but they're oviviviparous. Oviviparous. So they have internal fertilization. It's basically like the eggs get fertilized on the inside. We've talked about this with some other species on the show before, but then the eggs will hatch inside of the mother and she still carries them for a little while longer before giving live birth. But it's not like there's a placental or any sort of connection. It's just the eggs are fertilized and then hatch inside of her. So uh, both fossils led uh, were, were kind of right. I mean, you can't have a wrong fossil. They're also the uh, largest fish eggs that are known to exist. So that's something. Something special. Big. How big is that? Huge. Huge eggs. The biggest eggs. The best eggs. Huge. (laughs) Charlotte, I need a lifeline. The eggs, according to the Virginia Institute of Marine Science, female coelacanths carry between 20 and 65 developing eggs. The eggs are three and a half inches in diameter. Damn. So we're talking big eggs here. We're talking the best eggs. They are three and a half inches in diameter. So if you've ever seen a fish egg before, you know that this is massive. And when you're thinking about eggs that size, you got to imagine that this is very much a K-selected species. Ah, please tell me I got that right, that it's K-selected. That would have been embarrassing if I'd said R-selected there. Uh, It's been a while (laughs) since I was in school. You know, this is just a famous sort of scale that people use within ecology and the biological sciences. I think it was developed by E.O. Wilson and his colleagues back in the day. Yeah, your K species put a lot of effort into a very small amount of young, so like humans, versus your R-selected are putting a little bit of energy into a ton of babies. And these coelacanths, their gestation period, in addition to having these giant few eggs, it's three years, which is... Probably the longest of any, I'm guessing, maybe animal. You got to imagine, if you got eggs that big, though, you can only eat, I mean, the coelacanth's a big fish, but it's not that big. There's only so much room in there, so you can only have so many eggs. So this is on the extreme sort of K-selective side of the fish world, where you're going to have, even though you might not be thinking about it as parental care, keeping those eggs inside uh, your abdomen until they develop is a, definitely a form of parental giving care. Giving them a head, yeah. Giving them a and leg up. A, give a them a head start. Up. <laughs> good, good one. Uh, Thank you. Yeah. Uh, no, I, I, that was a good one. But yeah, so. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> but it means slow reproduction rates. I don't think that they know exactly how uh, old these fish are at maturity, but. They reach maturity in their teens. So 16 to 19. So that makes them sensitive to overfishing uh, not that, again, not that there's tons of people out there targeting them anymore, but if you do have bycatch of these fish, it can have a major impact. So, yeah, so these guys have huge eggs, but they have tiny brains. So their brains only occupy about one and a half percent of their cranial cavity, and the rest is filled with fats. But that's not to say they're not skilled at what they do best. These guys have been on Earth for a long, long time. 
I was reading this article about people getting on it about being a living fossil. Yeah. They're like, well, technically it's constantly evolving. It's like, well, that's not what people mean by living fossil in the, in the vernacular. So shut up. <laughs> I think the main reason I would say people should care about this fish and just this discovery is that we still don't know a lot about Earth in terms of being able to make these amazing discoveries like this fish. I mean, this wasn't found that long ago and it was thought to be extinct for millions and millions of years until somebody found it. So I think that's just pretty amazing. And as a ichthyologist or a biologist or just someone who likes fish or just likes the natural world, that's a really cool thing that you can kind of think about that there's still a lot of unknowns out there. And even this fish that now that we've discovered it, there's still a lot of unknowns. Like we don't know a lot about its evolution through time. As we talked about the living fossil piece, it's just, it's a pretty amazing story. There's so many crazy things. This fish is nearly six feet long and we didn't know it was around even when my grandpa was alive. Maybe your parents were alive. I don't know how old they were. (laughs) (laughs) I hope that's not offensive. My parents are still alive. So that's oh, good. <laughs> no, I know they're still alive. But when were they born? They were born in the 50s. My grandma was born in the 20s. She's still alive. Yeah, there, there's people alive today who were old enough to read the news when this thing was discovered. The often quoted, like, little fun little stat share with your buddies is that we know more about the surface of the moon than we do the bottom of the ocean. And that's true. I mean, you, these guys, they go down there, they're discovering new species every time. And th- this is just a, a perfect example that, I mean, it happens to be closer to the surface of the ocean, but it's just a real sense of adventure that knowing that there's such cool stuff out there that can just be found and be stumbled upon. So I think that's really cool. And it's kind of just a neat reminder of time, too. I mean, humans weren't walking the earth until like 300,000 years ago or whatever. And this fish is, I mean, that's just a a small sliver of how long this kind of fish has been on earth. So it's just kind of cool to think about that time scale as well. All right. Well, go science. Get out there and enjoy all the fish, including the coelacanth. Thanks for listening to Fish of the Week. My name is Katrina Liebich, and my co-host is Guy Eero. Our production partner for the series is Citizen Racecar, produced and story edited by Charlotte Moore Lambert, production management by Gabriella Montaquin, post-production by Alex Brower. Fish of the Week is a production of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, Alaska Region Office of External Affairs. We honor, thank, and celebrate the whole community, individual tribes, states, our sister agencies, fish enthusiasts, scientists, and others who have elevated our understanding and love as people and professionals of all the fish.